Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Congratulations. You made it to the end of the week, and so did we here at the Three Martini Lunch. Glad you're with us on the Friday edition to wrap up the week. We have good, good, and crazy martinis. And, Jim, let's dive right in to our first good. Uh, Earlier this week, we had, of course, the Roger Stone sentencing controversy. Uh, The prosecutors in the case recommended seven to nine years for his lying and obstruction convictions in a Washington, D.C. federal court late last year. Uh, The president didn't like that. A lot of people thought it was excessive, given that he's a first-time offender and that he's fairly old. And uh, President Trump went on Twitter to blast the idea. And then when the Justice Department decided to reduce its recommendation, it was seen as uh, Bill Barr doing Trump's bidding over at the Justice Department. Barr sat down on Thursday with Pierre Thomas, the longtime justice correspondent for ABC News, to address the situation. And Barr says uh, Trump's public statements, his tweets on things like this, don't help and they've got to stop. Public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases, uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the, in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity. Mr. Barr. The president uh, does not like to be told what to do. He may not like what you're saying. Are you prepared for those ramifications? Of, of course. As I you know, said during my confirmation, uh, I came in to serve as attorney general. Uh, I am responsible for everything that happens in the department, but the thing I have most responsibility for are the issues that are brought to me for decision. And I will make those decisions based on what I think is the right thing to do, and I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody. And I said at the time, whether it's Congress, newspaper, editorial boards, or the president, I'm going to do what I think is right. And, uh, you know, uh, the, I think the, the, I cannot do my job here at the department uh, with a constant background commentary that, that undercuts me. Jim, I think this was an important thing for him to say. Obviously, folks who don't like Bill Barr in the media uh, or in the Democratic Party uh, don't believe a word of this. But uh, we do know that the attorney general, on the one hand, is uh, serving at the behest of the president. And on the other hand, is the most independent uh, member of the cabinet as well. So uh, I think this was an important statement for him to make. It was. And for everyone who says, ah, you know, I don't think Barr really means it. Well, he's going out and saying it, and we've already seen the first of what I think will be, you know, several Trump tweets about this. Um, Every Republican official and certainly everybody in the cabinet, uh, you know, takes uh, takes a considerable risk every time they dare say anything in public that contradicts what the president does. Uh, So I don't I don't think this is an act. I don't think this is contrived. I don't think he doesn't really mean this. I think he's calling it as he sees him and he's ready to deal with the. Uh, consequences of it, even if it means, you know, Trump goes comes out of the Oval Office later today and says, that's it, Barr's out of here. I want Jared as uh, <laughs> attorney general or something like that. Um, but I want to make another observation here. I want to take you all the way back to the Obama administration. 
And this isn't just Eric Holder called himself the president's wingman and all that kind of stuff. It seemed about like when something like the IRS scandal came out or the, the Department of Veterans Affairs, veterans dying while waiting for care, you'd see the president who would sometimes talk about the federal government and the decisions it was making as if he was some sort of outside observer. Oh, I'm, I'm as mad as anybody about this. I, uh, this uh, veterans dying for care, that, that's terrible. Somebody should do something about that. You know, you're like the rest of us are screaming, Mr. President, you're the head of the executive branch. The buck stops with you. You should be you're not, you know, some pundit on TV. You should be reacting to this throughout all government, I think in particular the Department of Justice. Whenever an attorney general gets confirmed, there's always he wears two hats, right? He is on the one hand, the chief law enforcement officer of the entire country, runs the Department of Justice. And in that sense, he has to be a nonpartisan figure. He has to be seen as someone who is not there to help one party and hurt the other. His job is to adjudicate. His job is to run a good group of prosecutors and investigators so that federal law enforcement is trusted by both parties and isn't seen as a you know personal extension of the president's whims. But at the same time, a cabinet official, not only, as you mentioned, not only serves at the pleasure of the president, but they also it's pretty common that a president will say, you know, my, I have ordered my attorney general to launch an investigation onto this problem in the country, you know. And for Democrats, it's always, you know, corporate, you know, corporate crime and white collar and all that stuff. And for Republican administrations, it's usually the drug trade or illegal immigration or something like that. There's always been a little bit of politicization to the attorney general. This is not somebody who's a, a position who's completely never offers any comment on any political issue whatsoever. And you can go back to Loretta Lynch, Eric Holder, uh, Mukasey, John Ashcroft, Janet Reno. I mean, this uh, Alberto Gonzalez, you know. All attorney generals are going to have some version of this this accusation thrown at them. I think Barr is observing that it's tough for the Department of Justice to have any of its uh, uh, you know, reputation intact when the president of the United States, every time they make a decision that he doesn't like, jumps onto Twitter and says, what's wrong with these people? This is ridiculous. And it's even worse when it's very clear the president is real. You know, look. If Roger Stone was just some schmo who'd never met the president, you know, President Trump would not be jumping onto Twitter to denounce the Department of Justice prosecutors for having harsh sentences. Um, he doesn't care about harsh sentences. He's usually saying law and order. We got to get tough on people. But as soon as Roger Stone gets convicted of something, well, now it's time for mercy. Now he likes criminal justice reform and vice versa. You know, he's like, why have they investigated Biden? Why have they, you know, Trump clearly believes the purpose of the Department of Justice is to go after people he doesn't like. And to take it easy on people he does like. And when the president is constantly doing that, every decision that the Department of Justice makes is going to be perceived as, oh, do they do they really mean that decision? Is that them trying to work around Trump? Is that them trying to massage their original viewpoint in order to placate Trump? Um, he does himself enormous amounts of damage here. And, of course, he's going to take the exact wrong lesson from this. I think the perfect example of all this, of course, Greg, is that Lou Dobbs on Thursday night was saying about he's so disappointed in William in, in Barr and good heavens, why can't he understand how what the president's been through and that the president's fighting for, you know, all that kind of stuff. On Wednesday night, Lou Dobbs was saying that Barr was doing the Lord's work. <laughs> so, you know, we have always been at war with East Asia, I believe will be the headline tonight. <laughs> 
Well, as you said, whether it's Supreme Court justices, federal judges, uh, the attorney general, we're at the point where for a lot of people in this country, they're principled if they make decisions that agree with me. If they're not, they're a political hack, particularly if that position happens to agree with the president. And so when Trump tweets things like this, it obviously fuels the fire of those people who think that Barr is simply Trump's puppet. I don't think there's a lot of evidence to that, obviously. But a lot of it, I also suspect, is because they fear what's coming with the Durham investigation. They don't know exactly. And that way, if you can discredit Bill Barr as Trump's lackey, then whatever comes out of this investigation can immediately be discredited. I think that is a uh, undoubtedly at least a factor in, in the, what we're hearing here, Greg. And the other thing is that, look, this, this is a president who expresses every thought that pops into his head. I don't doubt that there were times Bill Clinton was mad as hell at Janet Reno. I don't doubt that there were times where uh, Bush wanted to have the surveillance system and Ashcroft said no, the famous scene at the, the side of the hospital. A president disagreeing with his attorney general is not you know, super unprecedented, but usually this sort of thing is handled behind closed doors because a pre, you know, past presidents have wanted to be seen as, uh, as a little bit separated from this. And the idea of if I directly attack my own attorney general, if I directly attack the prosecutors who are working in, you know, as U.S. attorneys and in my administration, well, then I'm undermining their judgment for all their cases. And so I shouldn't do this. I should know all of my criticism should be uh, very well laid out, very well thought out, tempered, precise. And that's just not the way this president operates. And he's going to get himself in trouble and we'll see how things shake out. But uh, Again, you know, up until Wednesday, everybody in Trump world would have said Attorney General Barr was the best guy the president ever could have picked that he was doing. And I think there's a lot of evidence to make that argument. But now all of a sudden he's dared say the president should tweet less. And now all of a sudden he's an enemy and, you know, must be treated accordingly. Just to follow up on your Bush versus Ashcroft on the surveillance state, uh, a lot of people might say that the real hero in that story from a civil libertarian perspective is Ashcroft, who even while in great pain from pancreatitis refused to sign off on it. The real hero, as we all know, is Deputy Attorney General Jim Comey because, you know, he agreed with Ashcroft. Well, he's the one who told the story. So, yes. All right. On to our second good martini now, Jim. And yes, Bernie Sanders has won at least the popular vote in Iowa, and he also won in New Hampshire isn't uh, winning the delegate count at the moment, but uh, we'll see where we stand in a few weeks on that. But the Washington Free Beacon doing some interesting analysis in Iowa and New Hampshire about where Bernie did well and where he didn't. Uh, And here's what they say. A Washington Free Beacon analysis of census data and early primary results found that Sanders finished no higher than third and as low as fifth in the three Iowa counties with the highest proportion of privately insured adults. In New Hampshire's Rockingham County, where 83% of adults have private insurance, Sanders lost by four points to Pete Buttigieg and nearly dropped a third behind Amy Klobuchar. In addition to losing Rockingham County, Sanders also struggled in Hillsborough and Merrimack counties, where close to 80% of adults have private health insurance. He won those counties handily in 2016, beating Hillary Clinton by 15 and 19 points respectively. Sanders took both Hillsborough and Merrimack by just one point in 2020. And of course, it's a more crowded field, so that has something to do to explain it. But it also says Sanders' shortcomings in Rockingham, Hillsborough, and Merrimack could give Trump an opportunity to flip the Granite State because he lost there by just 0.4% in 2016, and more than 64% of the state's population resides in those three counties. So, Jim, I mean, you never know. These people 
might not have to deal with a, a Bernie Sanders nomination, but even if they do, they might grit their teeth and do it. But at least uh, on the surface here, it seems that uh, there's an opportunity to win over some folks if the Democrats keep going down this road with a Sanders nomination. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna add to this uh, report with an anecdote. I realize that you know the plural of anecdote is not data. I realize that uh, this is my perception of other people's reactions, my memory of their accounts and their words. So take it with all appropriate grains of salt. But that having been said, I think there is um, there's some there's something noticeable and probably worthwhile in this this example. Got together with a bunch of friends. I have a bunch of friends who are not directly following politics. Listeners, I regret to inform you, they don't even listen to this podcast every day. <laughs> Males, never. They've, they've met Greg, and they just seem like he's this nice guy that I do a podcast with. They don't listen very much, and I'm not saying my wife is definitely in this crowd, but she's definitely in this crowd. So I have this group of, group of friends, a bunch, some of them usually vote Democrat, some are more independent, some go back and forth, but they're all not that political. They don't follow the news day in and day out. Or maybe they hear the headlines, listen to news radio on the way in. They certainly are not reading National Review very much, if, if it ever. Um, and so they're just not, you know, they don't keep up on the details of policy. That's fine. You know, not everybody in the world needs to. But the topic comes up and I say, did you know, as I like to <laughs> annoyingly be the one to, to inform them of these things, that under the, the legislation introduced by Bernie Sanders and co-sponsored by most of the other Democrats running for president in the Senate, it is illegal for your, inform, for your employer to provide you insurance, and it is illegal for anybody to set up any type of insurance type setup that competes with Medicare and what the federal government will be doing. These people had no idea. And they're smart people. They're accomplished people. If they're, they're, you know, even if they weren't my friends, I'd like to think of them as very, you know, they, they didn't notice that. They kind of just thought Medicare for all meant Medicare for anybody who wants it. But if you like the insurance you've got with their employer and all these folks are employed and all these folks seem at least reasonably happy with their insurance that they get through their employers. Sure, they love it. They wish they, wish the co-pays were a little lower. They wish the premiums were a little lower. You know, they, they get it. But they also understand that, you know, heaven forbid their kid, you know, falls off something and has to go to the emergency room. They can get good coverage pretty darn fast and good, you know, good treatment. And, you know, um, they'd much rather have this and they're not really interested in rolling the dice on a new government system. So when I laid this out to them, first of all, they looked at me like I had two heads. And listeners, I realize this, this podcast is audio only, but I don't have two heads. <laughs> and then some of them thought, well, you're the crazy right winger at National Review. That can't possibly be true. So I broke out the phone. <laughs> Brought up the legislature. No, my friends, it really is. Medicare for all takes away your private insurance, even if you like it. And you're going to have to go through the government. And maybe the government care will be good. Maybe it won't. My friends have heard the stories. They know in, in, in Canada, if you have nothing wrong with you, I'm sure it's great. If you have something that's very common to you, that's wrong with you, it's probably not that bad, although maybe the wait's longer than you want. If you have something that's rare that's wrong with you, you are SOL. And like, if you don't know it, look up that acronym. <laughs> you are in deep doo-doo if you are in one of these state-run plans and you have a really unique or unusual health problem. So they all represent these giant gambles. So this particular case, again, we don't know if Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee. It certainly is looking, for him, looking pretty good for him these days. The, the, again, I think the number of so I think a number a enormous number of Americans don't realize for all in Medicare for all means them too, and also means that no, they can't keep their plan. They may not be able to keep their doctor. Everything will be taken over by the government, and you better you know it's it's a roll of the dice. The same people who brought you healthcare.gov will suddenly be in charge of whether or not you get the healthcare you need. If Republicans can't win on a, an election on that message. I don't think that, you know, you don't, you just don't deserve to win. 
interesting to see how long these other candidates stay in the race because Bernie's percentages, of course, uh, compared to four years ago, are not what they used to be. And it's not as nice and neat as a lot of folks seem to think. You know, there was a poll a couple of weeks ago that if Biden were to get out, the candidate that would get the most of his votes would be Bernie, even though they disagree strongly on this issue and I'm sure a number of others. So uh, just because you clear the lane doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the other people in that lane pick up all your votes. But, uh, Jim, uh, first of all, what you said at the very beginning was true. Your friends are wonderful people. Uh, Your wife is uh, wonderful in in every way. Uh, But the fact that they don't listen to the podcast, I only have this message for them. How dare you? I mean, this is... uh, (laughs) This is a 101 in living in this area is, you know, you got to listen to Three Martinis. They, they don't know what they're missing, Greg. I'm sorry. <laughs> so next time at the Christmas party, we'll do a live taping. All right. Let's move on to our crazy martini now. And uh, we, we're done uh, bashing on Bernie here. So let's move over to Bloomberg. Of course, he's, he's surging now, even though he's not actually appeared on a debate stage. But when you spend a couple hundred million dollars on ads... Everywhere people look, they eventually start to pay attention, and they're uh, they're well-produced ads. Uh, we'll see what the polls look like in a few days after this whole stop-and-frisk thing uh, gets past him, if it gets past him. But uh, now we have uh, Michael Bloomberg in the crazy martini for another reason this week. The New York Times. The Bloomberg campaign is working with Meme 2020, a new company formed by some of the people behind extremely influential accounts. Mick Perzicki is the lead strategist of the Meme 2020 project. He's also the chief executive of Jerry Media, a media and marketing company that is a powerful force in the influencer economy. That all sounds good, right? Well, Free Beacon again says, What the New York Times neglects to mention for some reason is that Jerry Media was behind the ridiculous and fraudulent marketing campaign for Fire Festival. The promotional materials for the failed festival, which was driven by celebrity endorsements on social media, convinced thousands of rich idiots to fly to the Bahamas in hopes of seeing Blink-182. What they found instead was utter chaos. The founder of the festival eventually got thrown into prison for fraud because rich idiots have lawyers. And uh, ultimately, uh, Jerry Media produced a documentary about the failed festival. They got nominated for four Emmys. So, so far, they've come out of that okay. But... uh, as long as we're talking about a uh, fantasy project, might as well hire those people, right, Jim? <laughs> I'm just waiting for, like, Ricardo Montalban to come out. <laughs> you know, Let me give you the Fire Festival island of your fantasies. Um, to give perspective of just how far-reaching and invasive Mike Bloomberg's just, just relentless tsunami of advertising, you know, radio, television, internet... Uh, Greg, right before we logged on, I saw this fascinating survey. It said 23% of American adult parents, this isn't registered voters, this isn't um, uh, likely voters, but just 23% of American parents said, uh, particularly if they had newborns, that their child's first words were, I'm Mike Bloomberg and I approve this message. That's <laughs> how far. So on the one hand... You could probably look at we can look at this and we can laugh and we can kind of say, oh, my goodness, you know, yeah, he's spending more money than anybody's. Ever. Like, I, I also I share that anecdote because both of my sons have been walking around the house saying I'm Mike Bloomberg and I approve this message <laughs> jokingly. They have not been brainwashed. I haven't put them up to this, despite what my wife may think. And I think this is good. like they're seeing so many ads that it seems like the most ridiculous thing they've ever seen, too. Um, I don't know. Here's like if you are targeting 
10-year-olds and 12-year-olds that for, for to vote who aren't registered to vote at all and are years away from doing it, then probably a chunk of your messaging is reaching the wrong demographics. It's possible that of these, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that Mike Bloomberg is spending, that a good chunk of it's going to be wasted, that a good chunk of it is going to reach, you know, it's like running commercials at 3 a.m. on, you know, channel 47, you know, that a bunch of the, this, these things aren't going to do it. But the nice thing is when you're a man whose estimated wealth is like, what, 50 to $60 billion, you can afford to waste money that way. You can afford to experiment that way. Um, it was a really fascinating stream that pointed out uh, that when Bloomberg was mayor and he clearly drifted further and further to the left, you didn't hear that much criticism from other Republicans in New York State. And why? Well, it turns out at one point Bloomberg wrote a check for a million dollars to the New York State Republican Party. Oh, <laughs> and that now here's the thing: we all know we made fun of him for the uh, you know the, the the soda ban and his t- statements on gun control and all these other things. But he, you know, he bought a lot of friends, or at the very least, he bought a lot of people who were not going to go uh, and, and really lift a finger to, to argue against him. A lot of these charities, every town for gun safety, every gun control group is effectively a subsidiary of Bloomberg. And so you look around, you know, so many charities have had one donation from him to another. Um, much to my, you know, semi-chagrin, one of my all-time favorite columnists, Peggy Noonan, writes a column in this coming weekend's Wall Street Journal, they put up her column on Friday mornings where she kind of says, you know, first of all, take Mike Bloomberg seriously. And Greg, she likes him. They've She's encountered him enough time. Like she's not saying she would vote for him. She's just saying that, you know, she, you know, she has big disagreements with him, but she likes what he did as mayor. And this is, you know, she does not see the same Napoleonic maniac that you and I and a whole <laughs> bunch of other conservatives see. And there's this kind of unnerving sense that a lot of people, just as when Trump appeared on the scene, a whole bunch of people whose introduction to him had been through The Apprentice or through the 80s tabloid stories or all these other things, that they came to the table with this pre-existing good feeling towards him. A whole bunch of people who I would argue probably ought to know better might have warm, fuzzy feelings about him. And even those who don't are going to get hit by this relentless ad campaign and all of these millions of other ways in which Mike Bloomberg has been throwing his weight around. And I should say more accurately, throwing his wealth around for better part of like two decades in American life. This is really kind of we are really going to uncharted territory here. And, you know, could this backfire? Sure. I think as, as I wrote earlier this week, Bernie Sanders has been dreaming of running against a guy like Mike Bloomberg. And there's going to be this jujitsu with this argument of like, look, every, you know, Mike Bloomberg is just a giant pile of money. Take that away from him. He's nothing. And is that really what you want in a president in America? And that presumably should be enough to beat him in a Democratic primary? Not so sure. Probably. Maybe. Big, ugly floor fight if he gets the nomination. Bernie bros probably storm out like probably he doesn't get the nomination, but who knows? And the other weird, the other weird thing is you throw all this stuff out about Bloomberg's record. And a certain number of people will respond on Twitter, you know, look, I don't care about any of that. I just want to beat Trump. Damon Linker writing in The Week magazine is like, uh, we're, we're trading one oligarch for another. <laughs> it's like, which Manhattan billionaire who's a narcissist and with, you know, issues of treating women badly, do you want, America? The Republican one or the Democratic one? Um, so we'll see if this all backfires. Hopefully the Bloomberg presidential campaign does get remembered as the, you know, the 2020 equivalent of the fire festival. But boy, oh boy, when you when when you were reaching for a couple hundred million in the petty cash drawer, boy, you know, this this is a, a a daunting menace for the other Democrats and conceivably in the general election up against Trump. 
Wow. Well, if this works and Mike Bloomberg becomes president, I'm going to start planning already for Emperor Bezos because uh... I was just about to say, like, (laughs) there's I remember the time I was surprised when Bloomberg was mayor of New York City. He was also the single richest man in the city. And I remember thinking as an American, I don't know if I'm comfortable with the richest man also being the most politically powerful man at the exact same time. I think those two roles should be should be split in this country. Uh, now, look, we've always had wealthy presidents, you know, Kennedy, Bush. None, no, no president's ever poor. And, they, you know, most people who are in high levels of politics live at minimum very comfortable lives, usually have seven figure, you know, personal wealth and all that kind of stuff. But, man, the the multi multi billionaire running thing strikes me as a uh, awful lot of concentration of power in one in one person's hands. Well, we did have the Clintons leave the White House dead broke. We know that. But uh, <laughs> other, other than that, they've done. I mean, you'd so- figure they get more, you at least be able to you know cover their their costs by pawning off all the silverware they took with them. It's <laughs> a great reference. Mike Bloomberg's birthday today, by the way. He's 78, just like Bernie. Biden's 77. Uh. So uh, <laughs> it's the youth movement. What do you get for the man who owns everything? Apparently the presidency. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see. We will see. I uh, heard a good joke today that uh, Bloomberg and Bernie are both trying to buy the presidency. Bloomberg's trying to do it with his own money and Bernie's trying to do it with uh. yours. So take your pick, Democrats. All right. Jim, have a great weekend. We have a special President's Day podcast uh, for folks on, on Monday and then back to our regular fair on Tuesday. See you in a few days, Greg. Sounds good. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus. Thanks very much for being with us today. Have a great weekend. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. And we'll be back Monday for the next and the President's Day edition of the Three Martini Lunch.